The Fixed Income Team Talk by Aberdeen. Welcome to this edition of the Aberdeen Fixed Income Team Talk. My name is Alan Podgill, Fixed Income Investment Specialist at Aberdeen, and I'm your host today. Today's Team Talk is titled The Corridor of Uncertainty, which is at, given the recent news on inflation, supply chain problems, climate awareness and related issues, and generally the problems faced by policymakers when it comes to balancing economic growth and decisions over the next step in terms of policy. So to tackle this topic, I'm delighted to be joined by James, uh, an investment director in our government bond team. Hi, James. Hi, Emmett. And Luke, an investment director in our corporate bond team. Hi, Luke. Hi, Emmett. And Sid, uh, head of emerging market corporate debt. Hi, Sid. Hi, Emmett. Okay, so before we get into the meat of the discussion, a feature we have on the podcast is called What's Your Favourite? That is to allow our listeners to get to know our speakers a little bit better. So given the recent release of the new James Bond film, No Time to Die, uh, I thought it'd be a good What's Your Favourite to find out who their favourite Bond is or what their favourite Bond film is and why. So I'll go first. So for me, James Bond was Roger Moore growing up. But uh, I really like Daniel Craig's first outing as Bond, which was back in 2006 in the film Casino Royale. And what I really liked about it was actually his portrayal of Bond was more kind of gritty and hard-hitting, a bit more robust than the kind of suave and sophisticated Bonds we'd seen before. I also quite liked the poker, the poker scene as well, and in particular the line, I'm sorry that last hand nearly killed me, which was quite good. And now over to you, Athy. James Athey. So I, like you, Annick, grew up with uh, Sir Roger of Moore, but uh, unlike you, I'm going to stick with Rog as the purveyor of the finest Bond movies. So it's it's very close between The Spy Who Loved Me, For Your Eyes Only, Man with a Golden Gun, but just pipping it possibly because of the theme song, uh, but also, you know, the storyline, sort of one-armed man, crocodiles, and running across crocodiles' heads. Uh, the winner for me, uh, Live and Let Die, uh, and that must also give a special mention to Sheriff J.W. Pepper, who was such an excellent additional character that he then uh, subsequently made an appearance in a, in a, in a Bond film shortly afterwards. Uh, he brings, you know, Rog brings suave and sophistication, as you say, but there's also a little bit of comedy in those 70s and 80s Bond movies. So Live and Let Die is my favourite. That's great. I thought we were almost about to get a rendition of the uh, the theme song there, but we'll maybe leave that for, for next time. I could give you the Guns N' Roses version as well. If you... <laughs> that would be good. That would be good. We'll leave that for the, for next time, James. And and over to you, Luke. What's, what was your favourite Bond film and why? Well, there, there's only one Bond and it's Sean Connery. Uh, you maybe need to be of a certain age to appreciate that. And if it's Sean Connery, there's really only one Bond film that wins at the top of any list and that's Goldfinger. And if for no other reason... It's when he first said a martini, shaken, not stirred. And Bond came out as what he was at the time. You know, everything good and everything bad in today's eyes uh, about Bond was in that film. Um, Absolute classic. If I had to pick a more recent one, I'd go with you as well, Amit, by the way. Uh, Casino Royale needed to be remade. The original was so poor <laughs> and i think uh david did a really good job on that but nate goldfinger for my all-time best 
Thanks, Luke. And as I wonder if a martini shake and not stirred is your drink, but I'll, I'll maybe pick that up uh, offline for you, mate. Uh, and Sid, what about you? What's your favourite Bond film and why? Well, I love Bond movies because I can totally relate to the guy, right? Um, but um, jokes aside, I mean, I, to be honest, I'm, I'm, I'm not a massive fan of Bond movies. And maybe the older movies, um, um, to be honest, I've not even seen all of them. Daniel Craig seems all right. And as a Bond, he seems to be not overly perfect, so more, more human, I suppose, as you've mentioned. I'm going to go for one of the newer ones. So I would go for Skyfall, mainly because actually um, because of Javier Bardem, uh, who was in the movie, who is uh, one of my favorite actors. What what a, what a, uh, um, a title role he played! That was an excellent. Yeah, in Skyfall, obviously, I think it was set in Scotland, or there were scenes shot in Scotland. So yeah, excellent, excellent choice there, an excellent choice all around. So thank you guys. So um, to our listeners, that's what's your favorite. Hope you enjoyed that. And now on to the discussion, and I guess we're best to start them from the kind of macroeconomic perspective. So James, can you give us a brief overview of the the rates or or government bond uh, outlook uh, across the kind of major markets? Yeah, sure thing. I mean, brevity is quite difficult in a scenario situation is so unbelievably complex and volatile, febrile, uncertain and loath to use the word unprecedented, but to some degree it is at least in in the last 30 or 40 years, huge amounts of uncertainty. The outlook is, you know, for that reason, therefore quite uncertain. We're seeing a huge amount of inflation pressures, which we still believe will ultimately prove to be transitory, but they are lingering longer than some had suspected and certainly the magnitude of price changes is uh, much greater than the market had been expecting six or 12 months ago so inflation obviously as a general rule isn't good for bondholders it erodes the the real value of those fixed coupons um, but the extent to which it's truly destabilizing does depend to some degree on the central bank response that will impact how far yields rise and indeed how the curve shape changes. And it gets a bit more nuanced in that regard. I do think we have seen in the last few months, however, increasing evidence that the likes of the Bank of England and the Federal Reserve are being pushed, shall we say, towards a more hawkish stance. That's going to be involve both balance sheet and rate policy in, in, the, coming, uh, in the coming months. We expect that to lead to flattening pressure in those yield curves. The ECB, as always, a bit of a special case. The Eurozone remains a much less healthy economic region with much greater structural impediments to growth going forward. And the ECB remains trapped in terms of its policy stance because of the potential for volatile and uh, destabilizing repricing of peripheral yields and spreads. And so while we think the ECB will again be forced to wind down some of its pandemic uh, emergency asset purchase programs, they will try and increase some of their standard purchase programs to offset. We certainly don't think the ECB will be in a place to hike rates as far as the eye can see. So maybe uh, steeper curves in Europe relative to the US and the UK, where we expect uh, curves increasingly to flatten. Broadly speaking, we don't think yields can rise too far, however. 
we remain in a highly indebted global situation uh, and we would characterize the underlying economies as still suffering from long-term structural health issues and imbalances which act as a headwind to growth and really do limit the extent to which central banks can be too aggressive with policy removal. Excellent. And and I guess um, I kind of alluded to it in the, in the brief kind of intro, which was, you know, there's, we've seen an increase in importance of environmental, social and governance considerations, and I guess more recently, more on sort of climate in particular. But how, how important are these considerations when it comes to the bond market? Uh, sorry, government bond market? Sure thing, yeah. So ESG obviously is a set of risk factors which are expected to impact the return on assets. You know, that's how we think about ESG when we're doing credit analysis or equity analysis within the firm. The idea behind that is that Uh, companies that don't manage those risks well would be expected to underperform in the long term. Therefore, it aligns the interests of investors like ourselves, shareholders and the company itself to to have policies to to deal with the challenges that might be presented by environmental issues to ensure there's good governance of of the firm itself um, and to ensure there's a responsible relationship between the company and society at large. Therefore, the, the, you know, analysis taking into account those those factors it's all pointing in the same direction doing a good job around esg analysis will help us identify companies that will outperform over the longer term in government bond space it's slightly different because the way in which government bond yields move tends to be in the opposite direction to economic activity and for example if we were to take environmental issues such as flood risk for a low-lying country like the netherlands it's not necessarily the case that the return on uh, an investment in a, in a Dutch government bond uh, would necessarily be adversely affected by uh, the fact that the Netherlands is a low-lying country with flood risk. Again, uh, yields tend to fall, which means prices rise uh, when the economy is doing less well, and that would be what we would expect if there were to be a major flood in the Netherlands. Notwithstanding, we would argue that many of the uh, factors uh, that we would consider within ESG would have would have been and and were part of our sort of standard analysis for um, you know, sovereigns for for looking at, at the state of affairs within a country and the likely path of of interest rates and inflation. For example, societal issues, political issues, very much within the S and G aspect. E, as I say, presents some some slightly different issues, um, but absolutely working with our own internal research teams. You know, that's fully, uh, fully integrated into our research process just to ensure that even if we conclude that uh, these factors are not likely to significantly affect future returns from those assets, we have gone to, um, to the effort of fully considering those when we're making an investment decision. And I guess, um, is there anything that the Aberdeen government bond team are doing to actually tap into, you kind of just mentioned there, the climate theme? Yeah, so obviously green bonds are becoming a, hot topic if you like they've been around for, for quite some time in in corporate bond space um, in some of the sort of su- uh, supranational issuers and increasingly we're seeing green bonds being issued in government bond space we we actually think we can do better than that green bonds really um, is a label it's it's a use of proceeds it's a it's a declaration of intent if you like from the issuer um, there, there aren't a huge amount of standards across uh, the piece just yet that's that's coming with time but realistically that money is is 
absorbed into central financing. It's not directly linked to, to projects of, of a quote-unquote green nature. So we're working on a product as it stands, whereby we've worked with our internal research team, a Siri, to create a framework that doesn't just analyze um, the intentions of governments, uh, but it analyzes the state of affairs with respect to carbon emissions, the trend with respect to carbon emissions, and puts a significant weight on the policy setting in, in across a number of dimensions. Therefore, we believe that this framework actually helps us to identify countries who not necessarily start from an advantageous position with respect to carbon emissions, but countries which are on the right path. And therefore, we can tilt investments within a portfolio to favour those that we believe are on a more virtuous path with respect to managing environmental issues, uh, you know, both within their borders and obviously globally as well. So putting together a product that will have this additional analysis, this additional scoring with respect to environmental issues as an overlay on top of our usual investment process, um, you know, managing interest rate risk. That's something which is, is in the pipeline at the moment. We don't see many competitors out there in government bond space who have uh, similar products. So it's, it's something we're pretty excited about here. Thanks, James. And I want to come to Luke to get the perspective from a, a corporate bond side of things. Um, Luke, is there anything or any area within the corporate bond space that you look at that is particularly appealing right now? Yes, I think so. If, if we accept... Uh, as James was talking earlier on, that we are not going to be seeing runaway inflation forever and yields heading to the moon. I think credit end up, ends up being quite a stable part of a client's asset uh, choices. So we've seen very little volatility of uh, investment-grade bonds in particular over this year. And, and that seems likely to continue. So with that as a background, it does feel worthwhile extending out into some of the riskier parts of credit. So that's the uh, better end of high yield in the double B and single B space. Um, it's into emerging markets for us as well, which we do for funds which can, and, and also into uh, some of the subordinated areas of uh, bank capital, where we've been able to find some great value over the last couple of years in the AT1 um, so-called AT1 space for bonds, where you know you're still able to get returns of a three, four, maybe even 500 basis points of spread, which when you consider your average investment grade index is around about 100 basis points of spread. And that's a really nice additional yield for clients when we are in this broadly stable technical background for, for credit markets. And I guess, what about areas that you think you're a bit wary of? Is there places in the market, the corporate bond space, that you think you're just... Uh, you're, you're maybe holding back from it. Yeah, for sure. So when when we're thinking about, you know, maybe moving into defensive areas, you would have thought about utilities in the past. And this is becoming an area of landmines. Um, we've seen Scottish and Southern recently have, have attached to them with private equity risks. We're seeing uh, increasing exposure to the to the corporate bond market with ESG risks, environmental risks in particular. So us, along with, as I understand, many other investors don't invest in um, gas past 10 years because we know 
home heating is going to change over that time time frame, or at least the government's aiming to change over that time frame. And it makes it really hard for these companies to think about how they change between here and then. Um, and actually, the broad swathe of investment grade, which is less than 100 basis points of spread, really gets difficult for us to find good ideas in without being concerned that actually you're just exposing yourself uh, to the risk of, of a company at its best, rather than actually one that could be improving that you could actually make some money for a client from. And what about um, valuations right now, Luke, uh, within corporate bond space? Is there, is there, uh, is there areas that you, you think are, are better valued? Is it a cross-market type um, scenario? What, what, what are you seeing right now? We, we've had a really good, I suppose, eight months um, using bonds that are coming out of lockdown, uh, coming out of COVID, that were really hit last year. But that's largely played its way out. There are a few areas left in there, maybe, but largely played out. Um, I think the airports in the UK are still offering great value at a kind of 180 basis points of spread. Um, we've got uh, theme parks in, in funds, which we think are actually still offering good value in around a 4.5% yield. And that's both People like Merlin in, in, in Europe and the UK that do uh, Alton Towers, etc. But we've also got Six Flags and uh, a company called Fun in the US. Uh, again, all theme park related. And that little part of the portfolio, I think, is great value at the moment. As, as we'll see, you know, consumers start booking up for next spring um, as, as the world opens up again. And there's still, you know, really good quality underlying businesses. And I guess... Those are the things that we prefer the most at the moment is that fundamental excellence that we're looking for from our investment grade portfolios and the fundamental improvements that we're looking for from high yield and EM and, and, and all of them with enough of a spread to, to make it worthwhile. That, as I said, tends to be over 100 basis points. And, you know, even in, in some of our more flexible funds, we're, we're around 54% of the fund has got over 200 basis points of spread on each bond. So those are the areas I think you can still get good enough carry, good enough returns to make it worthwhile investing in credit. Uh, and Sid, from a, an emerging market corporate bond angle, um, I guess the first question I'd probably ask is, should, should clients be worried about investing in emerging market corporates? Yeah, thanks, Amit. Look, uh, I mean, investing in EM can often seem fairly daunting because of the way news uh, works. Um, you know, bad news travels a lot faster and a lot further than, than good news. And there's um, plenty of bad news to be found if you if you cover more than seventy odd developing countries. But the but the real truth of the matter is that you know EM corporates, um, particularly in the in the dollar space and the hard currency space, have a have a long history of strong performance over market cycles. You know, uh, in our own experience, um, EM corporate dollar bonds uh, tend to be the most defensive part of EM fixed income. Now, this is um, sort of becoming more and more of a uh, market consensus view. You know, a few only a few years ago, people used to look at EM corporates as a bit less defensive, a bit more volatile. Uh, the reality is that this is a very diversified market uh, asset class with uh, with with good um, you know credit quality uh, offers a lot of diversification has has fairly low interest rate risk uh, you know duration um, for this market is fairly low as le at less than 5 years 
Um, and over the last 10 years, and in particular over the last five years, um, the sharp ratios um, in the EM corporate space have been, have been one of the best uh, across various risk uh, markets within fixed income. And I guess in terms of, so that's good to hear about, you know, obviously the, the kind of, you know, the, there shouldn't be too much to worry about when you're looking at, um, you know, particularly EM corporates. Um, I guess what clients would then ask is, what is the trend and default rates looking like for EM corporates right now? I'm going to guess it's on a on a, a downward trend, but could you give us a little bit about the history of default rates generally? And I guess how that's that is going to look. Yeah, um, default rates uh, have been fairly benign. I mean, I think, um, as Luke mentioned um, from his asset class, you know, and default rates have been generally benign post-COVID, at least a lot less than people have expected them to be. And default rates were about just over 1% last year for EM corporates, which is a fairly low number. You're definitely being compensated for taking that kind of default risk. And I think um, one of the things that we need to remember about EM corporates um, is that credit markets in general have been the beneficiary of um, of ex, you know QE across the world, excessively loose monetary policy, uh, and EM companies have also definitely benefited from that in in, in the sense that their funding costs uh, have gone down. Um, but one thing we have observed over the last few years um, is that EM companies have actually not taken a huge amount of debt. Yes, EM total issuance from EM dollar bonds has, has, has increased over the last few years, but that's because more and more companies are choosing to issue in, in the dollar space uh, globally. But if you look at leverage numbers, debt to EBITDA numbers, uh, for example, Actually, um, over the last, despite COVID, um, over the last few years, EM uh, corporate debt to EBITDA or leverage numbers have been going down so much so that, um, you know, uh, some of the forecasts say that at the end of this year or the end of second, end of first half, second, uh, 2022, the overall leverage in EM corporates is going to be the lowest it's been since 2011. So the lowest it's been in a decade. So EM companies have actually, their credit profile, the the underlying balance sheets have improved tremendously. Now, I think if you compare that to, to companies in the developed world, so US companies, US investment grade, as well as high yield companies, for example, I mean, their leverage has shot up significantly uh, post-COVID. Some of it is to because of uh, a drop in earnings, uh, but um, a lot of it is because uh, companies have uh, taken excessive debt to, to for what we call um, unproductive uh, use of funds, i.e. giving money back to shareholders, which obviously as bond investors we don't like. Uh, so in companies in the U.S. Uh, have done um, a lot of share buybacks uh, and tender activities, you know, uh, M&A. Uh, special dividends, etc., uh, and companies in EM have really shied away from all of that. So uh, most of the money that EM companies have raised is basically for refinancing purposes or for investing in themselves for future growth. And I guess, uh, Sid, a final, a final um, view from you in terms of EM corporates: is there um, is there a kind of stark difference between the valuation of investment grade and high yield within that space? Which part of the market are you favouring right now? Um, yes, there is a difference between investment grade and high yield, but 
you know, um, there are um, attractive portions um, in both parts of the market. I mean, there are a few spots in the investment grade space which look really attractive. Um, there are a few more opportunities in the high yield space. Uh, you know, we as a house, um, uh, we tend to have fairly large teams. We are able to look at every, um, pretty much every name that comes to our markets uh, in, from the EM corporate space. Um, uh, and generally, we tend to find a little bit more information asymmetry um, in the in the high yield space. We tend to favor high yield. The spread of high yield over investment grade is quite attractive at the moment. Admittedly, you know, the going on in, in the China high yield space is causing some of that spread elevation. But if you exclude China high yield spread in EM, um, high yield looks quite attractive. And actually, if you compare EM IG to US IG, for example, the spread pickup is anywhere between 70 to 100 basis points, whereas in, in the high yield space is actually um, more than that. Uh, so a lot more attractive. Um, and you have to keep in mind that, you know, within the last five years, there have been times where EM high yield has traded through US high yield. So at the moment, you are being paid very well for taking the risks in EM. That's great. Thank you, Sid. So I think that's probably all, all the time we have for. So before we close, I'd like to say thank you to all our speakers today. Th thank you, guys. Thanks, Amit. Thank you. Thanks, Amit. And uh, thank you to everyone uh, tuning in today. Uh, and so as a, just a final thought, maybe not quite in the James Bond style, but uh, given, given the thoughts of James, Luke and Sid, the corridor may not necessarily be as uncertain as we first thought, but we'll, uh, we'll see you next time. Thank you. This podcast is provided for general information only and assumes a certain level of knowledge of financial markets. It is provided for informational purposes only and should not be considered as an offer, investment recommendation or solicitation to deal in any of the investments or products mentioned herein and does not constitute investment research. The views in this podcast are those of the contributors at the time of publication and do not necessarily reflect those of Aberdeen. The companies discussed in this podcast have been selected for illustrative purposes only or to demonstrate our investment management style and not as an investment recommendation or indication of their future performance. The value of investments and the income from them can go down as well as up and investors may get back less than the amount invested. Past performance is not a guide to future returns, return projections or estimates and provide no guarantee of future results.